Someone asked me a question after um, the last session, and I thought I might just comment briefly on it. And there may be time for questions. Um, if, if you have them, I'll leave that up to Brandon, Earl, whoever. Um, is there ever a place for a committee to write a minority report? And the answer is absolutely, there is. That is uh, part of the protocol that is given in uh, Robert's Rules of Order, or even, I think, within our own parliamentary procedures uh, in our Constitution. The issue is not whether you write a minority report. The issue is what is your attitude when you write a minority report? Is it done in a way that shows submission to the authority of the General Assembly as a whole, or is it done in trying to get your own way? And that is what I believe the Scripture condemns thoroughly, is trying to get your own way, preferring yourself, thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to think. I want us to look at a couple of verses in Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And at first glance, this might appear to be totally unrelated to what we are talking about, but I want to show that I think is very deeply related to the concepts that we are examining here today. Paul writes in Galatians chapter 2, verse 1, that after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation and communicated to them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. I don't think I need to tell you that we live in a world that values subjectivity over objectivity. We live in a Christian culture in which spontaneity is seen to be more spiritual because it supposedly indicates sincere, heartfelt emotion. Planning beforehand is seen as cold, dispassionate, clinical. Spontaneous prayers are seen as more sincere and more heartfelt than a prayer that is read even though many spontaneous prayers that I have heard are so disjointed that you could hardly follow them. Especially I hate it when the word just is added every third or fourth word. Now I'm not saying that all spontaneous prayer is disorganized, nor am I saying that every pre-planned prayer is from the heart, nor am I saying the opposite. What I am saying is that because our culture does not understand how to strike that proper balance between subjectivity and objectivity, between organization and spontaneity, we tend to go off the rails when we talk about matters of great importance to us as an association. One of the letters of resignation received from one of the churches that resigned membership in ARBCA over the issue of divine impassibility contained this following statement, quote, in our estimation, <clears throat> excuse me, in our estimation, much of the associational culture of ARBCA 
has shifted to becoming overly legal and dictated by formal process. We have found that this approach leads to serious impediments regarding what we conceive of as healthy associational life. This is especially true in the arena of conflict resolution. A strictly formal reliance on process and technical legality inevitably leads to personal conflict being carried forward under the safer guise of objective doctrinal or procedural disputes, end quote. Now, I will say to you in no uncertain terms that I believe that those who wrote those words are very seriously mistaken. Not only do I disagree with the assertion that the associational culture of ARBCA has shifted to becoming overly legal and dictated by formal process, but I believe that a serious error has been made in hypothesizing a dichotomy between formal process and personal relationships in solving problems, especially in that arena of personal relationships. I would also passionately dispute the word guise when it is stated that a strictly formal reliance on process and technical legality inevitably leads to personal conflict being carried forward under the safer guise of objective doctrinal or procedural disputes. The word guise means a pretext, a way of looking or seeming that is not true or real. And frankly, using the word guise strikes at the motivations of the heart, which frankly, we as brothers in Christ should be very, very, very careful about ever doing. Following a formal process is not a guise for anything. Following formal process is is indeed, I would argue, a far safer manner of resolving both doctrinal or procedural disputes than reliance upon personal relationships. One of the pieces of advice that I tried to instill in my children when it came to making life decisions was to determine the principles by which they would operate prior to being thrown into a decision where emotions became involved. Once emotions become involved, it is quite easy to throw rational thought out the window and to make decisions based upon subjective emotional attachments rather than making decisions based upon objective principles and facts that have been established clearly prior to having to make the decision. When as an association we set down policies, we do so hopefully prior to a situation arising, but in light of the fact that just such a situation might arise. And by doing so, we try to ensure that the decisions that are made are rational, objective decisions based upon the objectivity of facts and principles rather than on emotional bias. When we deviate from those policies, we either compromise our confession of faith 
or other standards of our association, or we simply kick the can down the road only to have the situation arise in a worse form than originally presented to us. Furthermore, I would go so far as to say that many of the problems that we have faced over the past three years within ARDCA have occurred because we have not allowed formal processes to take their course as fully as we should have done. Now, I would argue that trying to resolve personal matters of conflict without using formal process, and we have a formal process laid out for us in Matthew 18, results in either the conflict being swept under the rug and not truly addressed, or a complete rupturing of the relationship. As I was thinking about Matthew 18, I wondered to myself, how many of us have really ever seen Matthew 18 carried through in its entirety? Most of the time, someone bails, or we give up on the process, because we don't wait upon Christ in the proceedings of the church. And I think that's sad. When Christ himself laid down a formal process and we won't even follow it. The use of orderly formal processes allows resolution to take place and sets us free from the pressure of personal relationships because we all greatly desire to please people. Frankly, I think that's one of the biggest issues we have to overcome as pastors. You know, Jesus said to the Pharisees that you want to please men rather than God. Well, I think that we have a little bit of that same problem. I think this is especially true in the whole area of church communion. Personal relationships will flourish much more freely when they are carried out in the structure of formal processes. In 1 Corinthians 14, the Apostle Paul addresses the church at Corinth because of the multitude of problems that were taking place within the church due primarily to the attitudes that were that were displayed concerning the use of what we would call the sign gifts within the worship services of the church. And Paul concludes his discussion of the proper use of those gifts with these words, let all things be done decently and in order. Now, lest you think that that was a Presbyterian verse, uh, the Presbyterian church hadn't been brought into existence yet. Now, while we understand that the primary context is that of the usage of spiritual gifts. I have a hard time believing that this is not what the Apostle Paul would have exhorted for any particular problem within the church. The word that is translated here as order is to arrange or appoint a particular structure of operation. It was a word often used of military appointments. You want to see structure? You want to see order? Take a look at the military. My wife and I, this August, will be celebrating our 47th wedding anniversary. How she has tolerated me that long is a testament to the grace of God. But in the early years of our marriage, we struggled in our relationship, as many young couples do, primarily over the issue of our personal finances. And after struggling for some time, we discovered this formal, structured approach to our finances called a budget. 
And after making out a budget, and after beginning to keep a very structured record of all of our expenditures, we discovered the most amazing thing. Our relationship began to improve. Now, we could have talked about our financial problems and and the relational problems that arose from those financial difficulties, but it wasn't until we submitted to an ordered arrangement called a budget that our relationship began to improve. See, structure is often like law in that we, in our rebelliousness toward authority, tend to resent structure. We need to learn, as God said to Israel in Deuteronomy 6.24, that God commanded us to observe his statutes for our good always. And I would argue that the same is true of structured order within the church association. It is for our good. Now, I want to address with you this morning some situations that arise in an association where structure will enable us to deal with these problems and thus Preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, as Paul commands us in Ephesians. Some time ago, I, some time ago, I finished preaching through the last five chapters of the book of Romans. And I was impressed, as never before, with how important to the Apostle Paul was the unity and peace of the church. In Romans 14, Paul instructs the church in Rome to pursue peace and that which makes for edification. He instructs the church in chapter 16 to keep your eye on those who cause divisions and offenses and avoid them. Let me interject here, if I could, a parallel passage. Titus 3.10, Paul tells us to reject a divisive man. Now, John Calvin has a commentary upon that passage that, in my opinion, should be must-reading for all of us as pastors and elders, because at some point we will have to deal with a divisive person. Listen to what Calvin says. Quote, we must now see what he means by the word heretic. This is a common and well-known, there is a common and well-known distinction between a heretic and a schismatic. But here, in my opinion, Paul disregards that distinction. For by the term heretic, He describes not only those who cherish and defend an erroneous or perverse doctrine, but in general all who do not yield assent to the sound doctrine which he laid down a little before. Thus, under this name, he includes all ambitious, unruly, contentious persons who, led away by sinful passions, disturb the peace of the church and raise disputings. In short, every person who, by his overweening pride, breaks up the unity of the church is pronounced by Paul to be a heretic, end quote. In all of Paul's admonitions to avoid and reject divisive individuals, the utmost concern is that we preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, lest the name of the Lord be blasphemed. One of the first places where we see Paul's great concern for the unity of the church is in the text that we just read, Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Paul went up to Jerusalem 14 years after his conversion on the road to Damascus. 
He had spent three years in the desert of what was called Arabia, which is not Saudi Arabia as we know it today, but rather the desert east of Syria, east of Damascus. He had then gone up to Jerusalem where he had met with Peter and James. And he gives us no details of that meeting, but we can surmise that it had something to do with the decision that Paul would go to the Gentiles and Peter to the Jews because Paul says that he spent that time in Syria and Cilicia. And then 11 years later, he comes back to Jerusalem once again. This time, because it would appear that a question had arisen concerning the gospel that Paul was proclaiming, because Paul was not requiring Gentile converts to submit to the Jewish ceremonies and rituals. Was he in line with the gospel being proclaimed by the other apostles, or had Paul gone rogue? Now, what is instructive for us here is the manner in which Paul addresses this potential doctrinal problem. He knows that he has received the gospel because he says here that he received it by revelation from God. He does not need the approval of the apostles in Jerusalem. But Paul values the unity and peace of the church. He does not want to sow discord or disunity. Consequently, Paul approaches those whom he calls those who are of reputation who I would surmise means the leaders of the church, again, probably James and Peter. He approaches them, and note the word he uses, privately. Because Paul was concerned about creating a disturbance in the church, he does not even proclaim publicly the gospel that he knew he had received by revelation from God, but he went to the Jewish leaders to make certain that they were of the same mind with him. Paul exercises great caution, I believe, in following a proper protocol with the leaders of the church in Jerusalem so as not to create an unnecessary disturbance. What other reason would the Holy Spirit have for making certain that we understood that Paul met privately with those who were leaders of the church. Now, when one considers the reasons for going to the church leaders privately, we can learn some lessons that I think will guide us as we work through possible variants of thought with regard to either doctrine or practice within our association. First, the Jews in general were very strongly attached to their rituals and their ceremonies And that attachment was still found in great degree even among the converted Jews. They may have understood that it had nothing to do with their salvation, but when you've lived with something for hundreds of years, there is a cultural attachment that is very, very powerful. Now, for example, in Romans 14 and 15, Paul had to address the issue of whether or not it was legitimate to eat meat or whether special days relating to the ceremonial law needed to be observed. And more than likely, these were issues raised by the believing Jews within the congregation of the church in Rome. And in my estimation, the issues that Paul discussed with the Jewish leaders were not whether or not the gospel of grace should be proclaimed, but rather whether or not the Gentiles to whom he proclaimed that gospel were still to be bound by the Jewish ceremonial observances. 
For Paul to simply proclaim publicly without any consultation with the Jewish church leaders that the Gentiles, and the Jews for that matter, did not need to observe these ceremonies would probably have created unnecessary disturbance. Now second, if such a disturbance had been raised among the general populace of the Jewish converts, it would have been next to impossible in that situation where people were emotionally agitated to offer the kinds of explanations that Paul would have needed to give them for them to understand what he was saying. And even if those explanations were given, it's unlikely that everyone would have understood the circumstances of which Paul spoke. Furthermore, emotion would have prevailed over logical reason. Some might have accepted what he said. Some might have rejected Paul's explanation simply because a close friend or a relative had done the same thing. Now, if those of reputation, that is the church leaders, could be made to understand, then they could use their influence to prevent difficulties among the general church populace. Now, you may recall in Acts 15, when the issue of circumcision and other Jewish rituals came before the church in terms of whether or not those rituals should be imposed upon the Gentile believers. It was James, the leader of the church, who issued that final ruling that had been achieved in cooperation with all the apostles and the elders of the Jerusalem church. By the leader stating the case, disruption within the church was avoided as they used their God-given influence to affect the church in a positive manner. Now allow me, if you will, to make some observations about our own situation as an association of churches. If you think that perhaps you have a doctrinal position that is at odds with the association's confession of faith, it is extremely unwise to begin blogging about your position on the internet or speaking publicly of your position, especially if you're calling into question some part of the confession of faith. The association has a protocol to address such issues so that there is no disruption to the unity of the association. The first step would be to call the chairman of the membership committee, inform him of the potential difficulty. That chairman of that committee could then call them into session to try to determine among the larger group of men if a doctrinal, that doctrinal position is indeed acceptable or not. They have the option then to call the theology committee in to weigh on the issue if they desire to do that. Now the chairman of the membership committee can then submit its findings to the administrative council. Now, if the, if the membership committee, the theology committee, and the administrative council all vote by majority that the position is not in accord with the confession of faith, it isn't rocket science to figure out that if you continue to press your point, all you're going to do is cause division. If you are truly concerned to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, you will quietly resign your membership in the association or you will bring your belief into sync with the confession of faith. 
Now, by blogging or speaking publicly before taking the issue up through the proper channels, one creates the very type of division that I believe the Apostle Paul was so concerned to not create when he went up and spoke privately to the church leaders instead of proclaiming his position publicly. You see, if you blog and those who read the blog disagree with your writer, they immediately become disturbed. Circumstances and explanations are much less likely to be understood. Parties form, often based not upon the logical reading of the confession of faith, but upon the strength and the power of personalities and relationships. Subjectivity trumps objectivity. Now, why would someone not follow what would seem to be such a logical protocol? Well, it might be that a person might not understand the importance that Christ and the apostles place upon the unity of the church in the Lord Jesus Christ. However, for those who are elders in those churches, that hardly seems to be a feasible excuse. Could it be that there might possibly be a situation such as Paul addressed in Romans 16 when he said, I urge you, brothers, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learn and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. And by smooth words and flattering speech, notice the subjectivity in that? By smooth words and flattering speech, deceive the hearts of the simple. I would like to think that it is not possible that this could happen within the elders of a church. But if it isn't possible, why would the apostle issue such a warning to us? Could it be that those who do not follow the protocol that will maintain order in the church are more concerned to satisfy their own personal appetites, their desire for control, their desire for power, for recognition, in effect, thinking more highly of themselves than they ought to think? Brothers, by following the order established by the association for addressing such issues, the issues can be addressed without the pressure of personalities and relationships unduly influencing the decision. And if the issue is of such a nature that it does not allow for continued communion as the confession defines communion, then at the very least, the two parties can depart as friends without rancor, and the unity of the Spirit can be maintained. They can wish one another God's speed so long as the issue is not one that is outside the bounds of historic Christian orthodoxy. In Romans 16, verse 25, Paul begins his final benediction in which he reflects back over all that he has written to the church in Rome and he magnifies the grace of God and the God of grace for what he alone has done in bringing salvation to both Jews and Gentiles. And he gives glory to God because it is God, he says, who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. The word establish has the meaning to strengthen, to make stable or firm, or to render constant. And if there is anything that we need in our lives today as we live in a culture that is rampant with subjectivity, 
If there is anything we need, it is the stability that comes to us through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I would argue that the reason we have so much instability in our churches today is because people have adopted, Christian people have adopted, the world's attitude of living by the subjective standards of their emotions instead of living according to the objective truth of the Word of God. I would argue that's the reason there was so much objection to the the regulative principle paper. Nothing stirs emotion like music. I grew up in it. It is hard to get that out of your thinking. But when you look at the Word of God, we see something completely different. And wow, does it bring stability to our lives. In the church in Rome, as you will see if you read chapters 14 through 16, there was considerable emotion stirred up over this issue of the observance of Jewish religious days and the issue of whether a Christian should eat meat. As I said, the Jews had been raised in a culture governed by the law of God that forbade eating of certain meats. The Gentiles had been raised in a culture where the law of God was virtually unknown. For the Jews especially, who had become acculturated to the idea of not eating particular meats or observing certain days as special, by this time, even if the religious significance of those laws had somewhat faded from their mind, the cultural customs were powerful. Consequently, the emotions stirred up by those who would counteract such customs were powerful. And I suppose the only similarity we might find in our culture would be if someone told us that you could not celebrate Christmas or Thanksgiving or Easter. That always stirs emotions. Such emotions create instability within the church. And the only way those emotions can be controlled and the only way that the church could gain stability was through the truth of the gospel and the constant preaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. And especially important in the preaching of the Lord Jesus Christ for this church in Rome was a revelation of the mystery kept secret since before the world began. And what was that mystery of which Paul spoke? A mystery that was of vital importance to the church in Rome, facing as it was division between Jew and Gentile over those issues of which I spoke. The mystery is identified clearly by the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Ephesians, chapters 3, 1 through 12, speaking there of how God made, had by revelation made known to him the mystery. Paul identifies the mystery in verse 6, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of the promise of Christ through the gospel. And only when they understood that truth and sought to resolve their difference on the basis of that truth could they have unity and stability in the church in Rome. So what should one do if he is part of the committee that must make the decision regarding the subscription of one to the confession and he does not agree with the majority decision? Well, once again, the unity and the peace of the church is of utmost importance. I believe that the council that took place in Jerusalem recorded in Acts 15 is instructive for us. The decision was announced by James that the Gentiles should not be subject to the right of circumcision, but they would be asked to, quote, abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. Now, when the letter was sent to the Gentile churches, they were encouraged. However, I do not believe for a moment that there was universal agreement 
among every member of the churches. If there was, it was probably the one and only time that there has been universal agreement in any decision made in the church. (laughs) If you look closely at the text of Acts 15, you will see that everyone had their say. Verse 7 says, and when there had been much dispute. This was not a decision at which the disciples arrived lightly. They heard all sides of it, and then a decision was announced. And the decision was announced not on the basis of emotion or personal relationships, but on the basis of the truth of what God had said and done. You know, this is a side note here. When I'm talking to my Presbyterian friends, I love to ask them, why didn't the apostles just say, look, they don't need to be circumcised because baptism has replaced circumcision. (laughs) But isn't it interesting they never say that? I digress. (laughs) What were those who disagreed to do? When this decision had been made, they certainly could not lobby against the decision since they would have been taking on the authority of the apostles. If they did, they ran the risk of being put out of the church. They had to make a choice. Either leave the church, and there was no church down the street to run to, or submit to the decision. And submitting to the decision did not necessarily mean agreeing with every aspect of it. But it did mean that those who disagreed would do nothing to interfere with the decision made by the apostles. Now, when one works within an association of churches, much of the work that is done is carried out by committees, as we saw a few moments ago, and sometimes by the general assemblies as a whole. If a committee on which one serves votes to make a decision, even if the vote is a one-vote majority, If that is the way in which the association has declared that the decision is to be made, there must be submission to that decision. If one's disagreement with the decision is such that a person believes it would violate his conscience, and we've talked about that already, to submit to the decision, then he must quietly resign his his position on the committee and consider whether he can continue to be a part of the association. And if the disagreement is not of that magnitude, then one must submit at the very least by doing nothing to undermine the decision made by the majority. Again, to do so is to elevate one's own opinion above the views of the majority. And at best, such action is a misunderstanding of how an association works. At worst, it is arrogance. For your consideration, I would remind you that the idea of a majority vote is not unbiblical. Some think that it is only the influence of our American political system that has caused us to look at majority vote, but it is not. The Apostle Paul makes reference in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 6 to the punishment, and he's referring back to 1 Corinthians 5, to the punishment inflicted by the majority upon the immoral man in the church in Corinth. Now, furthermore, to work to undermine the the decision of the majority, either in the committee structure or in the General Assembly, is to show, I believe, incredible disrespect 
to the other members of that body. And that takes us back to our first session. It certainly is not thinking soberly of oneself as one ought to think. It is preferring oneself above others. It is thinking more highly of oneself than he ought to think. Can you imagine what would have happened in Corinth if the decision as to how to handle the issue of the sign gifts had been handled on the basis of personal relationships? It was already chaos in the church in Corinth. This would have only added to the chaos. Consequently, Paul gives a set of orderly instructions. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or at the most three, each in turn, and let one interpret. Oh, come on, Paul. That's too orderly. That's too structured. We want the freedom of the Spirit. Mm-mm. And then he says, if there's no interpreter, let him keep silent. Unless, of course, you're in close relationship with the one who's leading the worship service. No, it doesn't say that either, does it? Let your women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak. Unless their husband's a good buddy, the one in charge. No. There's a set order, a set structure that Paul sets down. There is a structure and an order, and that order is the safest manner in which to resolve doctrinal and personal conflicts. And I pray that God will give us grace, even as we consider the issues before us today, that God will grant us the grace to not forsake our policies that bring order if there is any emotion that comes into the discussion, but rather that we follow those policies that were hammered out when the emotion was not high, so that we might see unity and order prevail in our churches, that we might endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you once again for giving to us this association. Father, it is a great gift that you have given to us. Father, may we prize that gift. May we treat it with the respect that we should because you have given it to us. Father, it is your church. It is not ours. Deliver us, Father, from our me-centered, subjective approaches to life. Enable us to find the stability that comes from your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.